The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by SR3 Rescue Concepts because you don't know what you don't know. And Life Saving Systems Corporation. We do our work so you can do yours. Tough gear for tough jobs. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help with your helicopter training, your standardizations and safety checks, or just your annual FAA refresher. They are ready to help your agency keep up to date and current with techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is amazing. They have certified flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, all of them offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, and ground operations. SR3 has also partnered with Petzl to assist with PPE inspection courses and the highly specific Lizard, which is used for helicopter cliff and mountain rescue. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com or over on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue. Then we have Life Saving Systems Corporation that manufactures the world's toughest helicopter rescue gear. From their Triton harness, which I personally absolutely love as a rescue swimmer, my favorite harness, to the rescue baskets and litters, and of course, the most popular hoist hook in helicopters, the D-Lock. The team at LSC cuts, bends, sews, wells, and machines these products into existence every day. Contact them today at lifesavingsystems.com or follow them on Instagram at rescue gear that's at r-e-s-q-g-e-a-r when you send a message to these guys you just add in there quinny sent me and they got your back i had a great talk with our next guest and i'm really excited to share this with you united states coast guard rescue swimmer number 122 him and i were together up in kodiak alaska he was my shop chief and one of the guys had come up to me when I first got there and said, you know what, we have a really good shop. There are a lot of good people here, a lot of good guys with good knowledge, and they can train you well. Take from them. But you need to watch our leadership as well because our senior chief and our chief are on point and follow what they do. And when you get into that leadership role, that's what you should be doing. So I'm really excited he decided to come on and talk with me today. Uh, we really just touched on one of his many cases. He actually told me he's working on a book right now called Sharks and Daisies, uh, which should be out in the near future. And he has 30 rescues that he wrote down in the book. He brought one to the table, and I'm really excited to share this with you, so I hope you enjoy it. Please welcome Mr. George Cavallo. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Real Rescue Podcast and let me introduce... United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 122, Mr. George Cavallo. How are you, George? Good. How are you? Retired Rescue Swimmer 122. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Retired, <laughs> not retired. You're still 122. Nobody can change oh, that. 
<laughs> always a swimmer. Once a swimmer, always a swimmer, right? Fact. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, so we already gave this kind of a little dry run. So now we get to go again, which is pretty exciting for me. So yeah, George. I want you to get over technical issues. Yes. Right. So my name is uh, George Caballo. Uh, I guess it's a little cliche, but we have to start from the beginning. I grew up in uh, Sarasota, Florida. Um, I spent most of my time on Siesta Key in a little beach town, uh, surfing. Um, gosh, I got certified to scuba dive when I was 15 years old. And uh, I was just kind of a beach bum. And uh, then I got interested in the Coast Guard, which is a story in itself. And I'm sure you want me to go into. Absolutely. Because it. <laughs> it's a good story, if I do say so myself. Well, thanks. So uh, I was uh, in my senior year of high school. I saw a uh, ad in the newspaper before Craigslist, of course. This is in the 80s. Wait, what is and, that? Uh, uh, an ad in what? <laughs> In the newspaper, yeah, they didn't have Craigslist back in those days. Uh, probably 80, well, this is 1983, actually. And uh, I saw a, an art, an ad for a Hobie Cat um, boat, and I always wanted to do that. I had, I'd been surfing, and, and I was very interested in the wind. So I purchased this boat in a box, put it together in the front yard on a trailer, read the two and a half chat or two and a half pages on how the wind works and how to sail, <laughs> crumbled it up, threw it to the side, loaded up my buddy and I in a cooler full of beer. And we launched off of Siesta Key. And I'll tell you, this thing shot like a rocket. The wind was blowing the right direction. The sails uh, blew up and we were flying, got it up on one pontoon, which I didn't even know that was a thing. And, <laughs> Before we knew it, we we crashed hard and snapped the mast and flipped it upside down, pitched us into the water. So we swam back, dove down and got the cooler, of course, full of beer. And, <laughs> and only uh, that, important, important. No, no, yeah, you got to have beer. It's a survival situation <laughs> as a senior in high school. So we, 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 we sat on the bottom of this boat for a little while, drinking the beer and, and pondering what to do. And, you know, it, it, the weather's not too bad. It's, it's two or three feet, nice rollers. You know, Florida doesn't get too violent too often, but without a hurricane injecting into the system. But we decided that uh, my friend should swim to shore. Not me. He should swim to shore because I was going to stay with the boat. <laughs> And uh, so he, we finished the beers. He six jumped miles, in the water. By the way, that that's a six-mile swim he's talking about doing right now. Six, six miles. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's a good idea. Not so much, but all right, keep no, going. No, it was a horrible <laughs> idea. But you know, <laughs> at the time, you're 18 years old. You think you're uh, indestructible. So he got about 100 feet away from the uh, the boat, maybe 150 feet, and uh, I think reason weighed in and, and we both kind of realized that, that you know that was a long way to swim so he returned to the boat and for the next four hours we dove down we tried to fix the mast we tried to figure out what we should do and nightfall was was approaching it was it was starting to get dusk and you know it gets when you're only in uh border shorts and a t-shirt and the wind's blowing and you're wet you start to get hyperthermic so we started shivering and about this time, a uh, airliner was passing overhead, and the pilot had enough sense to notice us 
laying out on the bottom of this catamaran and called the Coast Guard. That was nice of him. Yeah, we learned later from the Coast Guard guys. So out of out of the from the horizon, you saw this this boat growing in size and, you know, a Coast Guard 41 footer today doesn't seem that big to me. But when you're 18 years old and you're six miles offshore and you spent five or six hours on the bottom of this boat, it seemed like an ocean liner, right? <laughs> and uh, these guys pull up and I was just amazed at the young um, kids. You know, I was 18. They couldn't have been more than 19 or 20 running around on the deck. And um, the, the, they flipped over my catamaran. I went on board the boat and they put us in tow and started taking us back to shore. And I started talking with the coxswain who was 22 years old. So here's this 22 year old guy in charge of this, what feels like an ocean liner at 18 yeah. years old, right? And yeah. So we, we made it to shore. We, we, we filled out the paperwork, you know, and, and uh, I, I didn't really think much of it for a long time. Uh, but after I graduated high school and uh, was getting some pressure from my parents to, to do something, yeah. Go do something. Go get a job. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that was their their take on it. And uh, I don't know, you know, I, I, back in the 80s, I don't know if the Coast Guard had the funds to advertise or but they were their commercials seemed to be at like late at night, two, three in the morning. And I I happened to catch um, one of a Coast Guard helicopter flying around a tropical island. And I wrote down the 1-800 number and joined and wound up going to rescue swimmer school. And two years later, I was in a helicopter flying around tropical Island. And I thought, holy shit, this worked. Yeah. Come on. That's pretty awesome. I like that. Yeah. That's killer. And then, you know, at rescue swimmer school, I was, uh, back in the day, the coast guard was using the Navy to train all of its rescue swimmers. So you would go to the coast guard for a, a prep, to get ready to go down to Pensacola and train under the Navy to uh, become a, a Navy rescue swimmer. And then you come back to the Coast Guard and be a, a Coast Guard rescue swimmer. It was kind of not the best situation because the Navy was really um, training its folks to rescue down pilots, which is right. not really the, the mission of the Coast Guard, right? As you know. Correct. So, um, well, uh, I, I had orders. I was leaving. This was on a Friday. I was leaving Sunday to go to Pensacola to go to school. And they called us all in. Um, there had been an accident. One of the airmen had died um, at Marecki. He, uh, he was drowned by the instructors, we found out later. And, and some of those folks wound up um, getting in trouble for it. And um, so the Coast Guard kept us for about eight months. We painted rocks. We <laughs> ran and ran, uh, you know, they, they swam Stop. us and ran us, and didn't yeah. know what to do with us. And we painted more rocks. Yeah. And then it, it was, it was decided who, that, who else was in your class? Because you had uh, yourself. I know um, Olaf Lavelle was there with you because he talks about it. And uh, uh, there was a handful yeah, well, was, of you guys. Yeah, there was like 30 of us or so. So there was. Uh, wow. Um, John Worthington and um, De Felice. There was there was quite a few guys. So we, um, thirty of us. Yeah, we were waiting. So they sent us to Pen Petaluma. We all became uh, EMT qualified. They brought us back. They still didn't know what to do with us. So they put together the first rescue swimmer, Coast Guard rescue swimmer course. 
and we were the very first um, 30 guys. I, I think uh, only one guy um, failed out. So 29 or 30 of us wow. became uh, Coast Guard rescue swimmers. And from that day on, the Coast Guard actually ran its own program. And I know um, now it's it's sought after by, like you said, other countries yeah. and, and yep. uh, other services come to the Coast Guard now to train their swimmers. So yeah. it's kind of nice to see that progression and that they're not using the Navy anymore. Yeah. And even to go past after you graduate, you know, rescue swimmer, a school or aviation survival technician, a school, you go to a C school, which is the advanced air crew school or, or ARS. Um, it, it used to be advanced uh, aviation rescue swimmer school. And now they change it to like advanced air crew, which is, it's all. Yeah, cool actually, I, I, yeah. I got to go through that pretty early on when they were, when they were trying. And that was another one that, that I got to go through when they were trying to figure out how it was going to go. And I, and I guess yeah. now they've really refined it and it's, it's quite the course. Oh, it's an amazing so. course. And, and I was lucky enough to go through two, two or three times, two for sure. Uh, I had a blast. I, I, I love that class. And we had pararescue guys come down. Um, there's some of the Navy guys, they'd like to come over. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that are trying to get to that class as well just because of the experience and what you get out of it. So you know, to see the Coast Guard, I'll, I'll back up what you're saying, to see the Coast Guard and what they offer for rescue swimmer school side and how many other agencies and countries and are looking at that playbook, that's pretty awesome. So yeah, they've definitely come a long way. You know, we were wearing uh, um, sweatsuits and we had, uh, you know, UDT pants from World War II and using uh, <laughs> Vietnam Air PRC-90 radios. And now yeah. you see these guys, um, they, they, the, the gear and the training has come a long way since yeah. um, in 1986 or 88, 1988 is when I graduated. So it's, it's been a while, yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's, it's awesome to see what these guys get and, and the backing that, that comes with it. It's, it's just amazing. Even on the outside too, because you know, I've been outside for quite a while um, and to see other agencies and what they're doing and bringing into the program, the harnesses and the equipment, it's, it's just, wow. It's, it's awesome. I love it. Yeah. So anyway, but um, so now once you graduate a school, uh, your first unit, you went to where? Uh, I was stationed right there in Elizabeth City, so um, I I, uh, I put in a dream sheet to to go every place the Coast Guard had an air station except Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and of course I got Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's the way it goes, right? But you know they had the old they had the H threes there that could land in the water. Uh, the program was um, some of the air stations weren't actually using rescue swimmers yet. Um, there were about half that had rescue swimmers and half that didn't. Uh, the the um, mood of the pilots was still, you know, I, I many times I come out to the aircraft with my bag ready to go. And the pilot says, just so you know, I'm not going to use you. And here's this helicopter that can land in the water and they've been doing it for years. And so the paradigm, yeah. they, they wouldn't shift. Right. It took a long time. Um, and probably about the first 10 years that I was a rescue swimmer and I tried to go to air stations that had rescue swimmers and, and were utilizing them, but, but it was still so new and, um, the pilots hadn't wrapped their heads around it yet, but yeah, 
And I heard that a lot. Yeah. So, but all right. So now you get to Elizabeth city. I mean, I assume your first SAR case came from Elizabeth city. Yes. My first SAR case came from Elizabeth city where I was working for uh, Steve Ober, who's actually the very first, uh, he's rescue swimmer number one. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. He graduated number one of the rescue swimmer school. He was my, he was my shop supervisor and, uh, um, so it was good. It was, I learned a lot from him and I learned a lot in Elizabeth city and there was, a, you know, they had, they had started the program. So there was a little bit of history there and uh, flying on the H threes. The H threes was, you know, a, a Vietnam era helicopter. And I remember my first case because I, I don't even remember the pilot's name, but he was an old crusty guy uh, from Vietnam. And there was a, a, a Coke holder and he had a, a Pepsi in the Coke holder and he had a cigarette. And, and I know, right, on the helicopter, he's had a cigarette <laughs> and he would fly with his one hand on the collective and he would have this Coke and the cigarette and taking drags off of it. And I was just, this, I just couldn't believe this. This is like unbelievable. But this guy could fly, right? Yeah, and yeah. I, I shouldn't know his name, you know, um, but. Uh, I had a couple of small cases where I'd just gone out searching. So I don't really consider those SAR cases lost, duck hunters. Um, it wasn't really, you know, you, you want to think about the time when you get wet, when you jump in the water. And uh, I, I, one of the, the first cases I had, it's, you're going to laugh, but um, a boat had reported a dog offshore and they weren't able to get near him with the boat he just kept swimming away from it and this this dog was just a couple miles offshore swimming and we happened to be flying so they called us up and said you know we got this dog out here and he's just swimming along and so i actually went in the water and got the freaking dog nice my start case yeah saved that is awesome (laughs) (laughs) i did not expect that that's that is pretty awesome no, and I, I didn't expect it either. You know, I have all that training and all that oh. toil, and here I am. I'm getting a you know a German Shepherd out of the water, but uh, but um, you know, no, it was one that was that was one of my best air stations. It was just uh, uh, you know I went down and worked uh, um, Hurricane Hugo uh, after it hit uh, the, the Carolinas, and um, uh, just had a lot of. Uh, interesting stuff in the way of, of medical cases there too. So it was a good, it was a good air station. Man, that's awesome. Wow. Save a dog to, to what we're about yeah, to get yeah, into. My, you know, we, I, I don't know if I was going to tell anybody that story. <laughs> you know what? Was I love it. That's, that's awesome. Uh, I can't say I've saved any animals, maybe a couple on my own, but nothing out of a helicopter. So that's, that's pretty awesome. One of the things that I asked you to share with me is some of your cases. And one of them you sent to me, which I'm super kind of psyched about to talk about. It's um, a National Guard C-130 that that had a crash and you were out there on it. So if, you, if you're okay with that, I would love to read this award and then kind of get the backstory about this whole thing. Is that cool? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right. That's awesome. All right. So the award. Citation to accompany the award of the Coast Guard Accommodation Medal to George R. Cavallo, Aviation Survival Man, First Class, United States Coast Guard. Petty Officer Cavallo is cited for outstanding achievement while serving as rescue swimmer of Coast Guard 
HH65 Dolphin 6549 on the night of 22 November 1996. Knowing only that the Air National Guard C-130 with electrical failure might be in distress, he played a critical role in assessing the information while searching for the signs of the aircraft with night vision devices. Through his diligence, Petty Officer Cavallo located the faint lights from the aircraft strobe marking the debris field in the downed aircraft and vectored the pilots to the location. Once on scene, he made rapid preparations for a night deployment for possible survivors. When a survivor was located, he completed a difficult direct deployment into 12-foot seas filled with hazardous wreckage and saturated with pungent jet fuel. Pedeosa Cavallo calmly assessed the survivor and pried the float cushion from his icy grip to maneuver him into the rescue strap. Despite the fuel burning his face and buffeted by the heavy swell, Petty Officer Cavallo recovered the hypothermic air crewman. Petty Officer Cavallo expertly cared for the survivor's injuries and began rewarming efforts, despite being cold himself that he could not take vital signs. Petty Officer Cavallo's dedication, judgment, and devotion to duty are most heartily commended and are keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, it's been a long time since I heard that read. So it was kind of, it's kind of nice to hear that. It's, uh, um, it's a really interesting story because um, the sole survivor, um, Bobby Vogel, and I became friends after that uh, incident. And um, we actually went to Hawaii together. Um, I went, my, my wife and I went with his wife and, and him to uh, Kauai for uh, a couple of weeks, um, some years after that accident. So it's cool in a sense that I, I was able to really ask Bobby a lot of questions about what went on in the aircraft, which as you know, Jason, as swimmers, we don't really, you know, we pull this guy out of the water, we maybe see, talk to him for 10 minutes, and you never see him again. Yes. So you, you, yeah, you never have that that whole story. So I, I always find the story very interesting because I know what went on before and during for the sole survivor of this aircraft. And I'll, I'll give you the whole story and, and the backstory um, of it is, is, is pretty interesting too. Um, so it was, uh, what did we say, 22 November 1996. And yes. it's an Oregon Air Force Rescue C-130. Yep. Um, I, had, I had duty that night and uh, the, uh, the SAR alarm didn't even go off. The pilots walked by, I was lifting weights on the hangar deck and they asked me to um, get ready. They have a SAR case. And I, I said, well, well, what's the SAR case? He said, I guess there's a lost Zodiac boat in the Mad River, which is just over a little mountain range behind the air station was the Mad River. I said, okay. So I, I went and got dressed, got my rescue swimmer year. So Mad River, got, for location-wise, I don't mean to cut you off, but you're in Humboldt Bay, California with this, aren't you? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I know that because I was in Humboldt and I know the Mad River very well. So for everybody that doesn't know, uh, Humboldt Bay is located on the northern side of California, like the north coast. And they call it the lost coast for that reason. It's behind a redwood curtain and it is rocks out there it's it's crazy it's, it's yeah, anyway so that's where you're yeah, at and, and not to mention the fog uh, quite a oh, bit of fog no kidding so 
Um, yeah, so we we uh, we got in the helicopter. We you know we cranked her up and we we bounced over to the the Mad River, and we started to descend down to do a search. And the radio crackled from the air station and said, "Hey, they they reported uh, the the Zodiac boat is safe. Everybody's fine." Um, so we decided, you know, we're going to just uh, come out of the Mad River, maybe do a little uh, coastline search. Um, and then head home and the pilot gets another call from the air station and he says, Hey, uh, there's a C-130 off of Mendocino coast and they have lost one engine. So can you guys go out, head out that way and maybe, uh, fly, um, and vector them back in and just make sure they're okay. So, uh, the pilot tells us and you know, I was uh, a crewman on the C-130s. I was a loadmaster and a dropmaster and I'd flown on them for many years. Nice. And so I, 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 I kind of piped in to the pilots. I said, you know, that doesn't sound too serious. One engine out, damn, those planes can fly on, I, I believe, uh, um, at least, you know, they could lose at least two engines, maybe even three and still fly. So that's, he said, yeah, well, let's just head out that way. And, you know, maybe if we run into them, we'll, We'll, uh, we'll chat them up a little and, and follow them back in. So we started heading out off to the, the coast, crossed over the air station. And, and I believe the, you know, the co-pilot called in Kelly Larson, who by, um, interestingly enough, was a rescue swimmer herself. She was one of the first, she was the first female rescue swimmer in the Coast Guard. And As a matter of fact, um, let me let me jump in on that one because uh, she was the first rescue or aviation survival men, and then we, uh, we changed yeah, there you go. yeah, and then we changed the rate to aviation survival technician, and that's where Sarah Faulkner comes in, and she was the first aviation survival technician. Right. Jody Larson, Kelly, Kelly, Kelly Larson. Oh, sorry, Kelly Larson, first aviation survival man for the rate and rescue swimmer. Agreed. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And now she was uh, she was my co-pilot, so it was always kind of nice having a former swimmer up there in the in the, in the right seat. And yeah. Then, uh, um, Lieutenant uh, Brightung was my aircraft commander, and uh, Keith Young was the flight mechanic. And so we uh, we started heading out offshore, and uh, nightfall was was coming. So the pilot suggested that we go on night vision goggles, which back in those days they were. Uh, they hadn't really perfected them, in my my opinion. <laughs> I mean, it was just an annoying uh, green glow that uh, gave you a headache after about 20 minutes, and they were they were very heavy and bulky on your helmet, so you got neck <laughs> aches, and um, and they were just terrible. I, I know now they have some modern um, night vision goggles and do a lot better, but. So I, I, we all put our night vision goggles on as suggested by the aircraft commander and um, Seattle Center called and said, this is the position, the last known position of, of King 5-6, which was the, the name of the C-130, the Air National Guard C-130, Air Reserve Guard, actually, C-130. And Seattle Center piped in and said, yeah, I confirm that, that location. So the pilot... Um, co-pilot Kelly, she plugged in the coordinates and he and said, told the crew, you know, told us that it's 26 miles off the nose 
that's where the aircraft was last seen. So as we started heading out to this last known position, I, I couldn't stand these NVGs any longer and I, I couldn't see shit with them because, and I'm, you know, as you know, in the back of a 65, Jason, that little, we have a little window that's probably yeah. uh, two feet by one and a half feet. And yep. the door of the cabin, when it's open, blocks that window anyway. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's what we get to look at. We sit on the back on the floor on a cushion and, and our seatbelt actually attaches to the floor. So there's no not even a seat back there. You're almost in the tail boom. Um, so I took off my NVGs, I lifted them up and I just started staring out the window and it was a full moon. So the, the water kind of lights up when you have a full moon like that. And uh, it took a few minutes for my eyes to adjust but about seven or eight miles uh, off to the right, I saw six or eight flickering lights. And I immediately recognized that C-130s have quite a few uh, strobe lights that activate if an aircraft crashes in the water. Okay. And I could see that those look like, I mean, when you work around strobe lights like we did, you know a strobe light when you see it. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Seeing, seeing six or eight of them like that, um, it couldn't be anything else in my mind. So I reported to the pilot, you know, Hey, you know, right tongue, you know, we've got, I believe that that C-130 is off to the right. Those are strobe lights. He was not too keen on the idea. The, uh, Seattle center had the spot, you know, 26 miles at the 12 o'clock. And I wanted him to go eight or 10 miles to the, uh, three o'clock. Yeah. So, um, Kelly kind of piped in, you know, having been a swimmer herself and worked with the gear, she agreed with me. She's like, yeah, I think he's right. I think those are strobe lights. And he's like, shit, shit, shit. All right, we got to go check it. So he banks the helicopter over and we head over to this spot and, you know, we're at about 300 feet. And as we're coming in, there's six or eight strobe lights clearly out in the water and he starts to descend down and it was kind of interesting because there was a haze at about 100 to 150 feet over the water and and when we went through it it was disorienting because that haze messed with your depth perception and and he uh he was like oh shit the water's a lot closer than you thought yeah and Pull, kind of pulls up into a, a hover and starts slowly going in. And, and the very first thing we see when we get there is the wing of the C-130 and the nose um, landing gear, uh, two wheels from the nose landing gear floating in the water. Holy and cow. That just, at having flown on C-130s for years was just, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. And um, we, uh, we opened the door and the minute he opened the door, the um, Keith opened the door, jet fuel, I, this plane was fully loaded, was going to Hawaii. So it was full of jet fuel. I mean, it was loaded to the, to the max. Yeah. So it just hit us all and was burning our eyes. In and, the and, aircraft while you're in a hover above them. Right. Holy right, cow. right. And now if I'll, I'll back up a little to, to what was going on in the aircraft to kind of give you a, a picture of how it got to this position okay. when, when we got there. So Bobby Vogel, 
and um, the crew had left Oregon and were, were heading to Hawaii for a couple of weeks to do some training. And Bobby had actually talked one of his buddies into coming along, um, another, an air crewman, um, a ground crewman, actually not an air crewman, a ground crewman. And Bill, you're able to fly space available um, since this was not any kind of military mission, it was more just a training mission. Yep. He was able to go along with the crew and was going to stay in Bobby's room and they were going to be able to hang out in Hawaii when they weren't flying. So his buddies on board the plane, they're loaded up with uh, all the fuel they can carry to go across the pond. And um, about 60 or 70 miles off the coast of Mendocino, one of the engines all of a sudden... Um, just went out on them and they were unsure of what the problem was and were troubleshooting it and called Seattle Center and Portland and let them know that they had an engine out, which initially got us to fly out to their position. Yeah. And Bobby had turned around and he was actually, his, his crew position is um, radio men and he radioed our Coast Guard air station, which is kind of unusual and said, uh, told the, the coasties as he put it i just wanted to let the coasties know that we had an we had an engine problem and that we were headed back in and the pilot heard him make this call and turned around and said no don't get the coasties in an uproar because um you know it's only one engine we're fine and about that time the pilot turned back around the other three engines just shut down oh uh, man so here they are at twenty thousand feet in a c-130 oh. And it's as quiet as you and I are talking right now. All four engines shut down. They lost all electrical. <gasps> the pilot's flying by wire. So, it, it, you know, a lot of times when they fly, there's, there's servos that are assisting them. Now he's having to muscle this aircraft by hand. What? And, um, yeah, they, they, they found out later that uh, there was a, a actuator, a few actuator that was failed and it, it caused uh, a starvation of all four engines. Oh my gosh. So the pilots are, are trying to sh troubleshoot this and they, uh, he says to, uh, oh, Bobby actually pulls out his cell phone and he tries, and you're not really supposed to have your cell phone on board, but he's, this is back <laughs> in the days when cell phones weren't quite as, um, you know, widespread as they are today. So he, he actually tried to, uh, to call and couldn't get a signal out at that some 60 miles off the coast. And uh, the pilot, um, a bunch of the auxiliary lights had come on and a couple of guys were holding flashlights. And the pilot said, everybody go back one at a time and put on your water survival um, suit. And Bobby had remembered some training about the water survival suit and, and maybe had put it on once years ago and he had totally forgotten about them. So he went down and went into the uh, aft cargo area and went to get his suit. And his best friend of years was sitting there, white knuckling, holding on to the, the bench he was sitting on. And Bobby said he, he didn't know what to say. They, they caught each other's eyes and, you know, they could see the, the turmoil in, in both their eyes. And Bobby just, the only thing he could say and the only thing he could think to say was sorry. And his buddy just shook his head and, and looked at him and, you know, I mean, what do you say to something like that? 
So Bobby got his, his dry suit, put it on, went back up on the deck and started um, holding the flashlights. The pilots were trying to air start the, uh, the engines. This particular C-130 was an older model. The newer models have a, a generator that they can actually start in the air yeah. and, and the engines will start off of that. This one was older, it didn't have that. So it's they bleed air. To, See, I remember right. the stuff from the C-130. You get bleed yeah, air that comes off one engine to another and that's how you kick them on. Hey, look at me. That's exactly right. So there's a way to air start them. So they would have to go into a little bit of a dive get the, the, the props spinning at a certain speed and try like almost like you would push a Volkswagen bug down a hill yeah. and try and kickstart it. And that, that didn't work. They, were, they tried numerous times to air start these engines and couldn't get them going, not realizing there was no fuel getting to the engine. So it, it wasn't gonna work anyway. Wow. Um, so Bobby remembers that when they, they busted through that, that layer that I told you about that we saw in the helicopter um, and the pilot may have been disoriented and this, this is speculation, but um, because that layer was covering over the, the water, um, he did, he more than likely didn't flare the C-130 in time um, and smacked into the water at a high rate of speed. Um, and then the thought is since Bobby's, Bobby Vogel, Tech Sergeant Bobby Vogel's um, radioman seat is connected to the aft bulkhead of the of the cabin. The the yeah um, up in the cockpit. Flight, yeah, the cockpit. They think that the plane hit, spun, and it broke the nose off. Bobby's seat floated up, and the plane disintegrated behind him. Is the speculation. Um, wow. Bobby has no recollection. The only thing he remembers is bracing for impact and then popping up in the water and um, connected to his, his chair. So Bobby unlatched his chair and, and grabbed the seat cushion and held on to it for his life, basically. And the problem is that, uh, you know, you would, he had a, uh, dry suit on and he was in uh, frigid waters of California's Pacific Ocean frigid water I believe it's about 53 degrees correct so very good is that is that a good good yeah guess? that's a really good between 53 and 55 dry suit yeah. weather so you know in this survival suit he could survive for hours but you know ejecting from an aircraft that disintegrates behind you, Bobby was not in the best of shape. It had torn, ripped, and tattered his suit in many places. He had fractured his hip bone, uh, his ankle. He had numerous lacerations, and the suit was filling up with water, which is in itself not a bad situation because it acts like a, a wetsuit and does provide some protection to the cold water, but, but not enough to survive as long as it, if it was encapsulated. So Bobby is bobbing on this, on the seat and he's in and out of consciousness in pain and succumbing to uh, hyperthermia all the time. He's thinking about, you know, at the end of this, 
uh, Hawaii trip, he was going to propose to his girlfriend and actually had the ring in his top pocket of his flight suit. And his plan was, as they taxied in from their deployment, to, to come up through the top hatch in the cockpit and hold up a sign that said, marry me. And so wow. he was having these thoughts about his best friend who was on the plane, hoping he was alive somewhere in the water, his fiance to be and asking her to marry him. You can imagine the, the turmoil that this, this guy was experiencing as he was succumbing to the injuries and hyperthermia. Um, and he, he thinks that he heard a boat trawler passing by, but he, you know, at, at, in that condition, he's not sure if it was real or imagined, but he was yelling and screaming, which was exhausting to right. this boat trawler that was um, possibly 300 yards away, motoring by this airplane crash. Yeah. And we were able, never, never able to confirm that that was the case, but um, he believes that there was one. So now you enter us, seeing this wing and this nose um, landing gear floating in the water. And we immediately start to air taxi on this debris field that is sprung out over maybe three miles. Holy and as we're God. going along, um, we find um, two bodies in the water face down um, and not in the best shape after being ejected from this aircraft. Yeah. And we slow the hover down and we're having a discussion about if we should pick these two up, but they're not active. They're not clearly not alive. And about the same time that we're hovering over it, um, I believe that co-pilot Kelly sees a fin in the water or maybe the flight mechanic, I can't remember. And so then I started looking out and, and, um, we, we weren't sure if there were some sea predators now that had come into the area. Oh, my gosh. So the decision was the pilot um, said we were running low on fuel. We were going to be bingo, um, which it means that we're there's a certain amount of fuel that you need to, to arrive back at the air station with with a reserve. And we call that we call the time to leave bingo. Right. So yeah. we were just about bingo. And he said, you know, let's see if we can find somebody waving or, or actively alive. Um, he goes, I don't, I don't know if we can, you know, sacrifice the time to pick those two up and, and, and wind up leaving somebody else. And not soon did he say that, that we saw Bobby waved, a hand came out of the water. And I don't remember which one of us spotted it. I mean, this is, you know, many years ago, but yeah. somebody spotted it. And I think it was it may have been Kelly Larson, our co-pilot. And the 65 is unique in the sense that when you find, you know, here we are moving at about 40 or 50 knots over the water, you see this person in the water. And by the time you fly over them, you could be a half a mile by, uh, past them by the time you make a turn. But the 65 has a unique um, button that you press and it basically marks that position and you take your hands off the controls and the helicopter, um, and I believe it's called a match or a catch. Yeah, it's a, does a it's a catch. It's computer augmented, blah, 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 blah. Some right, people call yeah, it mark on target. There's a yeah. bunch of different terms, but yes. 
Right. So basically the computer locks with the satellites, it's talking with the satellites and it makes a precision turn and comes right around to a hover right over that spot. It's amazing when it works. Yeah. But on this night, right after we passed <laughs> it and pressed the button, the helicopter went into a bank and I was in the back getting my fins out, knowing that I was going to have to go in the water and get this survivor. And I fell onto the avionics rack. The helicopter went into a violent pitch to the left and we were sideways. Oh my gosh. I reached down and grabbed my mic and I just said over the ICS, cause you know, Jason as a swimmer in the back, you don't want to crowd the pilots with too much information while they're trying to drive the bus. Yeah. But I said, we're going sideways. And the pilot, Craig Brighton, said, I know, I know, I'm waiting for the um, satellites to couple. So what had happened was it needs three satellites, right? A triangle to yep. tell the helicopter where it is when it's doing this procedure. And one of the satellites had logged offline or maybe two. And the helicopter was confused and just went into this bank. Well, the pilots aren't really flying. The helicopter is flying on an autopilot. And I was getting really nervous and um, because when you're in a bank like that and, and you're laid over at such an angle that you're, you're slipping, you're, you're descending. And we weren't but, you know, a couple of hundred feet above the water and in a matter of seconds, you could lose that altitude. So I had just reached down to get a little more assertive in my um, conversation with the pilot about flying sideways <laughs> that's very nice the way you're saying that <laughs> yes well right i mean I, i'll tell you right now he's 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 a great pilot i have no yeah. um but he got locked in a mindset just you know because if we lose if we lose the computer mark it's going to be hard to find bobby so it's a it's it's six twelve half dozen the other do you wait a few seconds for the computer maybe to couple back up with the or do you take over command of it and lose the survivor well wow. if we crash it's not going to do bobby any good right. and um, to this day i'm pretty sure uh kelly larson a former swimmer saved our lives she said wow. fuck that grabbed the controls and righted the helicopter and pulled altitude and i am you know, anytime I run into that woman, she's getting a beer and a burger for me because oh, I'm wow. in this earth because I, I truly believe her taking controls um, and, and uh, saved, saved all of us. So we now we lost Bobby. We didn't know where he was, but we were alive and with only moments of fuel left, we made a turn and Luckily, because of the full moon and the conditions, we could see fairly well. Yep. And Bobby had waved again, come out of the water. So we had seen his hand now. And we were coming into the debris field a lot slower. So she was able to, um, whichever pilot was in command, was able to slow the helicopter down into a hover. And I immediately got in the door and... Um, started to, uh, we decided that we were going to do a direct deployment where I stay connected to the uh, cable because of the debris, the fuel, and having seen um, sharks in the water, we wanted 
um, to be able to uh, make sure that I was able to get back up in the aircraft. Um, so we did a direct deployment. And as I came out of the door, Bobby was gone. He, he, he had gone under. Oh, and gosh. They dropped me down. Um, Keith, uh, again, was a, uh, a um, really good flight mechanic. Um, he was an instructor. So uh, he pretty much reeled me down at high speed. I mean, not like we normally do a slow descent. I mean, I hit the water um, and uh, immediately got a mouthful of jet fuel. There was so much oh. jet fuel. And even in with my mask on, my eyes were burning, my face was burning. And um, I started floundering in the water where I thought Bobby was. And I was able to actually feel his, um, his, um, suit and I pulled him back up out of the water and he took a big breath. Well, actually, I'm not sure. This is what he tells me later. He took a big breath of air. I thought he was not alive at this point because he was very uh, limp. But as I bear hugged him and tried to take this seat cushion away from his hands so that I could hoist him up to the helicopter, he had such a grip on it that the first try I couldn't get his fingers off the seat cushion. And so I repositioned myself and locked my arms under his and was able to pry the seat from his hands. Um, he was in and out of consciousness at this point. And uh, I put a harness around him. And of course, we're both drinking more fuel, more water. Oh, God. And the, uh, um, and you know, and you know this too, Jason, it was so, it's so refreshing, you know, the three people hovering above you, the pilot, co-pilot, and flight mechanic, their sole job is to make sure that we as rescue swimmers make it home. So I always think of them as my guardian, right? Because oh, totally. Those people, yeah. those three people who most of the time don't get half of the limelight that the rescue swimmer gets, their sole job, and, and I don't, can't tell you how many times they've taken me home when, when, and stayed on scene when they shouldn't have. And um, so they're, you know, uh, Craig Breitung and Kelly Larson and and Keith Young were just amazing that night. And um, I, I put the harness around Bobby and I gave the thumbs up and uh, Keith reeled us up to the helicopter. And, you know, the 65, the hoist actually booms out off to the side of the helicopter while they're doing hoisting and then it booms back in right. and for a flight. And so while we were waiting for it to boom back in, I was outside the helicopter holding Bobby and waiting for us to boom inside the helicopter. So we were both half in, half out and Bobby threw up and it caught my face, my, oh. my suit, the side of the helicopter. And of course, with that swirling wind, it just went everywhere. And now I'm trying not to throw up because uh, my gag reflex is going, of course, because he just <laughs> plastered me in the face with vomit. Yeah. And unbelievably, uh, he turns. And now you know how loud it is under a 65 that's trying to hover and in, in blowing wind and seas swirling around. And yeah. he yells at the top of his lungs, sorry <laughs> like what the hell yeah I'm, 
Thank you. You know, you just got to say thank you for that. It's unbelievable what (laughs) what happens when you're in those kind of situations. So we we get boomed in and we lower Bobby to the deck and I straddle him and I pull him back towards the tail boom of this little 65 that's about the size of a Volkswagen bug inside. Right. And I, uh, I start pulling off my gear and start to do a pat down on Bobby to see what kind of injuries he, he has. And I soon realize we do what's called a pelvic crunch where you push on their, yeah. on their uh, pelvis. And, um, you know, he about went through the roof. So I knew his, his pelvis was broken. Um, I believe his uh, ankle was broken and there was numerous lacerations, but he was so cold and so hyperthermic that he wasn't even, he wasn't even bleeding from these, these lacerations. Probably so, saved his life too. I think so. And I, I reached down and I, I put my ear next, uh, my mouth next to his, and I asked him, I said, how many people on board? And I turned my head and I just remember him saying 11 and, you know, my heart sank. Oh. And just about that time, the pilot called bingo. And he said, you know, we're, we're way over bingo. We were bingo 20 minutes ago. And, and uh, which eats into our reserve that we're supposed to get back. So if we get back to Humboldt Bay and there's fog, now we might not have enough fuel um, to go to another airport and land. Right. But I mean, you know, when, when you call bingo and there's people in the water and you're in the middle of hoisting them, there's not much you can do. So there was some concern about how much fuel we had left. Um, so uh, yeah, I took care of Bobby and, and actually uh, the decision was made to just fly right to the uh, hospital. And um, we, uh, we dropped Bobby off and actually um, I got out with him because I was so, so much fuel ingested and stuff. Um, was not doing well. Uh, and then quite a few aircraft and, and ships and boats and planes were sent out to um, uh, find any more survivors. And there, there were none. And the two that we had found in the water were had actually died in the uh, crash. They, they were not alive. So we made a good call in uh, utilizing our fuel and, and picking Bobby up. Wow. George, yeah. that, that's crazy. It was just exhausting telling the story. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my gosh, man, holy yeah. cow! Now you so, and you and Bobby uh, still talk from what? Yeah, you're we, you matter of fact, we talked a couple months ago. We we catch up a couple times a year. Um, he's doing really well. Uh, lives in Arizona now has a daughter, uh, married uh, the young lady that he was going to propose to. And, um, um, you know, I, I think I, I, he has, still has a hard time being the sole survivor of that aircraft and, and so many of his friends and, you know, the questions of why he survived and they didn't. Yeah. Um, actually, I was invited to his wedding um, a year later, and it was probably the worst thing I, I, I could have done. Um, in the sense that it was so hard for everybody. When I when we got there, there were so many family members from the crewmen of the aircraft. Oh. That they were crying. I was crying. Yeah. You know, I wanted to apologize for not rescuing their husbands. They wanted to know, you know, they wanted to thank me, but also were, I mean, it was just, it was just an odd, 
situation. Yeah. And uh, I know uh, we weren't there, but half an hour and I'm like, start the car, start the car. <laughs> <laughs> abort, so, abort. We it, was go. Just, it was just an yeah. awkward situation, you know, so, yeah. so many family members had lost and, you know, you start to feel guilty, like, you know, why I saved Bobby, but why couldn't I have saved their family members? And, right. the, you know, reason tells you that that's not something you could have controlled. But yeah. um, when you see their faces and it becomes real, and again, you know, we, we rescue so many people and they're gone and we never see them again. And a lot of times we don't even know what happened. Yeah. And so this, yeah. this was a, a, a unique situation. And, um, so, um, but it is what it is. Wow. What a story. Holy cow. George, thank you so much for sharing that. I, man. And, and you know, like you and I had talked earlier, um, you, this is, you have so many more to, that you've done. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually working on a book. Uh, um, it's called sharks and daisies. I've written down about 30 of my uh, rescues and I tried to, uh, um, I tried to, to put people in the helicopter to understand what we go through or what we went through when we were rescue swimmers. And, you know, there's some comedy in there. There's some, cause that's the way we handle situations, right? We, yep. you know, we, I, I lost quite a few, uh, uh, friends and, and folks who worked for me who were rescue swimmers who died in accidents. And, um, so, uh, yeah, I'm excited. It's, uh, it's it's been a long process getting it and now i'm at the editing point of it so i'm hoping uh 2022 or early 2023 to have it have it ready for publishing so man that is awesome well i'll tell you what sharks, if, and, daisies, yeah. sharks and daisies that is yeah. awesome um i'll tell you what if you're up for it i'll have you back here we can we can talk a couple more stories and i don't want to give away the whole book but there is another one i want to talk to you i, I just about it it's going to be another time because i don't want to I don't want to take away from this case. This is, this is amazing. And, and again, thank you for sharing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime. Uh, um, uh, we can, we can do another one and talk about any case you want. Yeah. Heck yeah. Maybe um, one a little more lighthearted. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. You know, we, we all have the, the ups and downs and, and sometimes you, you get away and you save everybody out there and, and everybody goes away happy hugging everybody in the aircraft. And then the other times it's not, and it's, it's that hard pill to swallow, even as a guy that's trying, we're doing everything we can to go get and save everybody we can. And right, right. it doesn't always happen. So no. And then, and I think too, as we, as you retire and you get older, you, you tend to think about those cases a lot more. I know I, I reflect back on them quite a bit, especially since, you know, I'm spending all this time writing them out and, and trying yeah. to, uh, um, and it's been kind of an interesting journey. You know, I've, I've contacted some pilots and some flight mechanics that I've flown with on certain cases, and uh, they're not at a point in their life where they really want to look at it again. You know, they want to move past it. It's too much to relive it. Yeah. Um, and other ones have provided great um, insight as to what was going on or what was happening. Um, and I think what's so unique about Bobby Vogel and King 5-6 is that having that that perspective from inside the aircraft is just something as swimmers we never, never ever get. And, yeah. uh, and then uh, understanding what was going on on the other end by the survivor, right? Right. right. That, and yeah, uh, very much so. And of course, you know, it's not always the swimmer. It was 
it's a team man. you can't the from the ground crews and the support crews back at the air station to the pilots and the flight mechanic um you know we're just a teabag hanging at the bottom of the helicopter and uh this is definitely a team sport there's no doubt about it you can we and i so i've been blessed i've been able to be a hoist operator now for uh, almost 10 years and i got trained by one of the best and you know him is pat barber and, ah. you know so i had pat barber i had um dan Cassetti and joe martin and um well you know a funny story pat barber the first time i jumped out of a uh, coast guard helicopter he was my uh it was an a school he oh was my, yeah uh, flight mechanic isn't that funny <laughs> that's awesome yeah. so amazing, i did learn by the best mechanic yeah you did get trained <laughs> by the best so and with that it's it's one of those things that now that i'm a hoist operator as well it's it's when you're in the aircraft and you're you're doing all the talk because we're all on ICS up there while your guy is down on deck. So we're talking and having a conversation while you guys are working on deck, you know, or while we're working on deck. And now that I know both roles, it's the, there is a whole nother dynamic. And that those guys, you're right when you said it. We're I'm doing everything I can in the air to get you guys back in the aircraft and home. Yeah. yeah. So our guardians, I'm telling yeah. you, you know they. Yeah. They, they save my life every time we go out. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, George, uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this story with me. Um, we will oh, definitely pleasure. set up and do another one because. Oh, okay. That's awesome. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank All you right, my good. friend. All right. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute and as my daughters like to tell me all the time, like and subscribe. Oh yeah, I appreciate it. So I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story and would be willing to share it, I would be humbled and honored to have you as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else here that we talk about, please send me an email at therealrescue at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q at gmail.com. Or you can also check us out on our Instagram page at therealrescue, and that's at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. And for all of you standing the watch today, remember when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, stay safe out there, everybody.